Um, Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter 1 and 2, what is going on uh, with the southern kingdom? And that's where Isaiah is uh, a prophet too. You know, we, we said that when you study uh, the book of Isaiah, actually uh, Kings and Chronicles, you have the northern kingdom, uh, the southern kingdom, and Isaiah specifically is, is dealing with what we call Judah, Jerusalem, and of course Benjamin is the tribe. That's, that's the southern kingdom. What is going on? in all of Israel at this time. It's roughly about the year 720 BC, just generally. What, what, what's the geopolitical, moral, spiritual kind of setting, huh? Okay, they're drifting. And Isaiah, they're more than drifting uh, because the Northern Kingdom, uh, right around this time, just a couple of years after where we're at in chapter one and two, the Assyrians uh, are gonna come down and just gobble them up, the northern kingdom, and just take them away. You know, that's the Samaria region up there. But the southern kingdom still has some time left, and he's warning them. So when you come to chapter 2, he starts out, Isaiah chapter 2, where he says, uh, the word of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, southern kingdom. And then he goes into this thing, before he goes into this uh, prophecies of coming judgment he talks about it shall come to pass in the latter days the mountain of the lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains it shall be exalted above the hills many people shall come and say come and let us go to the mountain of the lord into the house of god of jacob teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths uh, and the word of the lord from jerusalem he shall judge between the nations but you see that idea this is like long term but he's talking about this time when righteousness will reign, latter days, end of age, messianic kingdom. But notice a couple of things here. In chapter 18, of, verse 18 of chapter 1, it's the Lord that says, come now and let us reason together. And that's where he says, though your sins be as scarlet. But now, who is saying in verse 3, many people shall come and say what? Come and let us. So the, in chapter 1, it's the Lord saying, come now. Come, let us reason together, though your sins be as scarlet. But now who's saying it in chapter 2? The people, the righteous people are saying, come, in, invitational. Uh, it's very important we discuss this idea that we serve an invitational God. Come, let us reason together. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. Come, all that are thirsty. But once we have come to the Lord, we become invitational people. Do you understand? We're, we're, we're inviting people to come know the Lord. And that's why almost the last verse in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, it says the, the, the bride and the spirit, the Holy Spirit, say to people, come, all you that are thirsty. Do you understand that? that we, we have this ministry of reconciliation. I think it's very important. Chapter 1, you see the Lord. But chapter 2, it will say, the people say, come, let us go up to the mount of the Lord. Come, let us walk in the light of his ways. Any thought of that? I, I think it's very important that we understand as ambassadors of Christ, we have been given this ministry of reconciliation. Important point. Okay, so now, um, just to set the scene, we're in, we remember that, let me give you just a, a tad of an outline here. A book of Isaiah, if you break it down into big picture, uh, this, these chapters going all the way up to about chapter 39, the, the judgment is coming. You know, it's, it's kind of a hard message uh, interspersed with, with pleas of uh, God reaching out like here, come let us reason together, they'll just repent, return kind of a thing. But uh, the sermons will kind of fall in the, explaining his visions, woes are coming, they'll talk about wars, roughly about 40 years, and he's within the lifetime of four kings. Uh, it'll be Uzziah, Ahaz, uh, uh, Hez, I'm sorry, uh, Uzziah, the son will be Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah. It'd be like uh, a pastor today that his ministry was in the presidential term of Clinton, of Bush, Obama, and now Trump. You understand? He, they're very historic in terms of the setting. That's why this book really kind of follows a really an exact kind of a timetable. Um, and of course, I'm back here. Here, this 40 to 66, this is where it gets very messianic. This is where... This coming glory, uh, you'll see Isaiah 53 here, chapter 65, 66, talk about a new heaven, a new earth, the lion would lie down with the lamb, all this kind of, almost like end of book of Revelation stuff. Uh, now, 
Here on the left, you see Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz. We won't concern ourselves with the kings of Israel on the right, but this is where we're at right now, right here, because you'll see in chapter 60, uh, chapter 6 of Isaiah, it'll say, uh, he saw the Lord. Let me just quote it real quick here. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. This will be his famous vision. But he time frames it with um, Uzziah, and then he's going to speak to these kings here. His prophet. You see how he's kind of locked in. Any thoughts on any of this? It's, it just goes to show you how the Word of God is really not written in language and mythology. Old Testament, New Testament. There's none of this long, long ago, far, far away, or, you know, like a Star Wars in the distance, you know, none of that, you know, but it's specific. This happened at this time. So-and-so was king. Same thing in the New Testament. So-and-so was proconsul. They went from this port city to that. So even critics of the Bible, especially New Testament, have a hard time arguing and saying these things are really locked into a historical, geographical, political setting. Uh, really, even when you look at um, Uzziah, we're going to look at a couple of things here. Number one, before we get into this man's life and go into, further back into the Old Testament, a couple of things are going on here at this time. Well, chapter two, uh, he gives this famous end time, if you will, millennial, whatever you want to say at this coming righteous age at the end of the age. And that's where the people will, um, they'll, they'll, Beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not rise. I'm in verse 4 of chapter 2. So there's this coming age of peace. And of course, I, saw, I showed you last week that's actually on the United Nations. The problem is man doesn't, is not generally make peace. I mean, until the prince of peace comes, we will not have world peace, let alone uh, the big picture peace. And then he says, uh, O house of Jacob, verse 5, come and let us walk together in the light of the Lord. You know, I like that. There's this invitation again. Come, let us walk together in the light of the Lord. And that harkens back to 1 John. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, we walk in darkness and lie and do not practice the truth. But if we what? Walk in the light. As he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us. But do you see how the Old Testament, these, I call it like cut and paste. You know, the New Testament, sorry. You know, they bring it forward, these truths and these promises, and insert it uh, that has application for us today. We're going to see that a lot of the book of Isaiah has application for us in this very day and age. I, I usually have three goals. I put them up our first day of the class when we study an Old Testament book. Number one, what's going on at the time? Just setting context. Are God's people in rebellion? Are they in obedience? Is it a period of blessing? Is it a warning? What is going on? Uh, what's the genre? Is it parable? Is it metaphor? Is it narrative? Is it commandments? What's him? Number two is uh, Christ. Jesus said, search the scriptures, for they test them. So we're looking, and we're going to find a lot of it uh, here. Uh, most referenced prophetic book in the New Testament is the book of Isaiah. I call it the Rosetta Stone of the New Testament. It just glistens with insights and and the third is, does it have application for our lives today? It says in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, whatsoever things were written before time were written for our benefit, that by diligence we can obtain hope. The same thing it says in, in, in Corinthians, these things happen to ancient Israel as an example to us. So where it has application, we try to draw application. If it doesn't, I don't try to overreach. Maybe I do. But I, I don't try to stretch it. But I do think this has present-day application. This is a living word. It, it's, it's eternal. It, it's effectual. I believe it has significant application for our lives today. Any thought on any of this? Any, any kind of, by way of this review? Okay. Now, he says this, going back to chapter 2, um, verse 6. Now he's saying, why is this coming? Why are these woes or judgment coming? Verse 6. For you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with what? Eastern ways. Okay? They are soothsayers, like the Philistines. They are, are pleased with the children of foreigners. Their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There's no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They worship the works of their own hands. 
that which their own fingers have made. People bow down, and each man humbles himself. Therefore, uh, do not forgive them. What, what is the moral setting here? I mean, not only the moral, but what's going on with this culture at this time? Let's say materially. Are they prospering? Are they moving? Yeah, they got silver. They got gold. How about militarily? They got chariots. See, Israel didn't have horses, chariots. They didn't, this was the, you picked this stuff up from the iron producing, you know, the Hittites and these guys, the Egyptians that have this kind of weaponry. Uh, what else? How about spiritually? Huh? They're learning stuff from the east. Now remember, that's where the Chaldeans were from. That's where the sorcery, a lot of the sorcery was coming from. There's sorcery here. There's idols. But are they religious people, chapter 1? What did it say in chapter 1 they were doing? They were keeping the holy days. They were burning incense. They were, okay. And this is, where, this is going to be a common theme, uh, that they will be religious in terms of their Jewish background, keeping ritual, uh, sacrifice, feast days. But then running right alongside that is this idolatry, this uh, superstitious, this occultic kinds of things. Um, could this happen today? Okay. Uh, I'm going to date myself here. We got a mostly 60s crowd here, right? Well, anyhow. But what, what happened in the 1960s was, was really culturally uh, catastrophic in, in many ways for our country. Uh, I won't, we'll get into that as we get into Isaiah, just where we're at as a, as a country. But if you remember in 1960, when he says you learned the ways of the East, remember what was going on in the 60s. Do you remember when the Beatles, the most popular band in the world, went to India and linked up with Maharishi Yogi? And then they started bringing it, not just them, but they brought it back. So the most popular songs, The Fool on the Hill or, or George Harrison, My Sweet Lord, which is about Hare Krishna, started coming. Then you started seeing at the airports and stuff the Krishnas. You've seen more and more the East was coming into our culture and spiritual climate here. You know what I'm saying? So what I'm getting at is Israel was supposed to be a city set on a hill. Nations were supposed to come to Israel and learn of the Lord and learn of the God of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and learn his ways. But what's happening here? The people aren't coming to him, and what's happening here? Who's influencing who? They're influencing Israel. You understand the flip here? It's very important, and we're going to delve into this as we get further into Isaiah. Any thoughts on any of this? Yes, Marie, please. I, this seems to be every generation has to deal with this kind of stuff. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point where it says in Jude verse 3, contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. In a sense, we've been entrusted. Am I right? We, if we sit here today with Bibles in our own language, in a, in a safe environment to hear worship and sermons, and you know, we're a blessed people, but we cannot presume upon our blessings. At one time, Israel was walking in the ways of the Lord. You'll see that in the book of Judges, this famous cycle where they're serving God, they're honoring God, and they start drifting, and they start are attracted to the ways of the Canaanites, the Hittites, and they start bringing in these little idols, and then they get immoral, they get further into the occult, and God sends a prophet and says, look, you've got to repent, you've got to get, usually they kill the prophet or run them out, but then God often will bring famine or some way to, to chastise them, and then they cry out, repent, and they get restored, and what happens? They're serving the Lord. They're, you know, this cycle goes like that. You'll see it in the book of Judges very clearly. But each generation of believers for the past two millennia have been entrusted with our Christian faith, with the Bible. With, and, and we have to pass that on to the next generation. 
and then they they're entrusted. Do you understand? It can slip. If you study church history in the Middle Ages, in the Dark Ages, the light didn't go out, but I mean, it was greatly minimalized in superstition and occultic practices and all kinds of things started invading even Christendom itself. Barb, did you have your hand? Okay, good point. We're going to pick up on some of these things as we move into Because Isaiah is bringing things out, uh, we're going to see this stuff coming. But the key is, as you say, Mark, is the, to, to, to minimize God's word and to move more towards experience and away from Scripture. Because Scripture doesn't change. You see, Scripture, you know, somebody has well said, you know, we'll leave, it stays. I mean, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word shall endure forever. And it's a little like our study last year with Ezra and Nehemiah. Remember they came back, and it says they found the scrolls. They found the Bible, and he read it, and it says the people stood and listened all day long. We have to, like, rediscover and reclaim it. Yeah, Steve. Uh, Isaiah lived in the time of Uzziah the king. Yes. And Uzziah, I looked at Chronicles, and Uzziah had a standing army. I was going to get to that. His soldiers. And he had 307,000 fighting men uh, with shields, spears, helmets, armors, bowls, and sling stones, and devices to throw and to lob large stones from the towers. Uh, so, you know, the military was very, very strong, and so that, and then Isaiah, well, you can talk about Isaiah. Well, let's turn there. Turn to, uh, let's turn to Second uh, Kings chapter 15 for a moment. Second Kings chapter 15. Um, now, um, Uzziah is also called by another name. You know what that other name is? Azariah. Azariah. Um, you compare Chronicles and Kings, you'll see where this comes out. But if you notice, um, somebody wants to read in a loud voice, uh, chapter 15, 2 Kings, in uh, verse um, 1 through 3, please. In the 27th King of Israel, Azariah, mm -hmm. son of Amaziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. His mother's name was Jehovah. He, She was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eye of the Lord, just as his father Okay, this is the time of Isaiah. Okay, Isaiah's living in this time frame here. He's going to be alive and have his vision when uh, Uzziah or Azariah dies. But he's doing the right thing, right? But look what verse 4 says. Except that the high places were not removed, the people still sacrificed and burned incense in the high places. What does that mean? Was, was he religious as a Jew? Yeah. But what was he doing? He was bringing this stuff in. Okay? That's not... Uh, what this is called in missions and in, uh, in terms of syncretism, it's the inco uh, incorporating into religious faith and practice elements from other religions resulting in the loss of integrity and assimilation to the surrounding culture. So what they're doing essentially... Is, is maintaining their Jewish religiousness, but they're bringing in idolatry. They're bringing in high places, sacred groves, sorcery, divination, uh, magical practices, uh, human sacrifice. But they're still religious, you know? It, it, it's, like, it's almost like a Christian, a person, but, the, but their everyday life is really uh, orchestrated by their horoscope, astrology. I mean, this is big-time stuff. I mean, not to be political, but we've had two first ladies once plotted her husband's schedule off a horoscope, a famous astrologer. The other one was on the top room of the White House trying to channel uh, through a psychic uh, Eleanor Roosevelt. That's well documented. I don't want to say who, what, where, but I'm just saying. The occultic, superstitious <coughs> systems get in 
with people who are still religious. Does somebody have their hand up? Yes, Beth. Is Yes, yes. You, you can, if you want, we can turn to uh, 2 Chronicles 26. This is the thing about Isaiah. It takes us backward. It takes us forward into the Bible. It's kind of neat. Um, okay, uh, 2 Chronicles 26, verse, maybe somebody could read verse 1 through 5, please. 2 Chronicles 26, 1 through 5. He built Elah and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Is he doing good as a king? Yes. Please note his age when he becomes king. Because one of the judgments it says in Isaiah chapter 2 is what about rulers? When they come, they will be what? They will be young. They will be real young. It's a type of social breakdown, but we'll study that. But he's doing good. He's got Zechariah, you know, this prophet kind of maybe teaching him. He's seeking to, to honor the Lord. As long as he does that, it says God will prosper him. But look at the same chapter. Look what happens in verse 16. But when he was strong in his heart, was lifted up, and his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar. Okay? So now he's, he's absurd. He's doing, kings can't be priests. Right? You can't do it. And so he's going in, and the priests will contend with him. And it will say in verse, uh, uh, the high priest also called Azariah, he says, the chief priest and all the priests looked at him, and there on his forehead he was leprous. And so they thrust him out of that place. Indeed, he also hurried to get out of the place because the Lord had struck him. King Uzziah uh, dwells in an isolated house because of his leprosy, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Then Jotham, his son, was over the king's house judging the people. And then it says, the rest of the acts of Uzziah from the first to the last, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, right? Hence, we're in the book of Isaiah. You see the linkage? So, but he was doing good, was he not? It says he was doing good. He feared God. But what happened over time? The first thing that happened, it says what happened? His heart was lifted up. Then he's maybe thinking, hey, I'm the king. I'm doing good. I'm going to be like a priest and go in and offer incense. Can't do it. The judgment fell. You understand? It's a, it's a lesson. It's a cautionary tale for all of us because we can be going along really good, but we might have some sin uh, that if we get away from the word of God, away from fellowship, away, that sin is going to grow. You know, that sin is going to grow and take us away from the things of God, even though we might be very religious. How many of you remember we looked two weeks ago at the church of Ephesus in uh, Revelation chapter 2. It says some, Jesus said some interesting things about that church of Ephesus. You know, the Ephesian church was very spiritual when you study the letter to the Ephesians. But turn uh, it, to just to uh, uh, Revelation chapter 2 for a moment. Revelation chapter 2. Now what's interesting about Jesus examining the seven churches in Revelation it's very similar to Isaiah, because in Revelation, Jesus comes to these seven churches in Asia Minor, and he's almost like the great physician. He examines them, he, he detects some fault, or most of them, or the six of them have some fault, and he offers a prescription uh, for repentance and healing and restoration, but he also puts a warning, if you don't do this, then that. You understand? It's similar like Isaiah, if you return, Get away from these idols. Get back to the Lord. He will heal you. He'll punch you similar. So look what it says here about the church of Ephesus. Chapter 2 of Revelation. It says, To the angel of the church at Ephesus, verse 1, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, that you have tested 
those who say they are apostles and they are not, and have found them to be liars. Uh, you have persevered, you have patience, you have labored in my name's sake, uh, and you have not become weary. Is this, uh, is this church doing things right or wrong? They're doing a lot of things right. I mean, check, check, you know, you're going down the list here. They have discernment, they have this. But, but, what is it? They drifted. It says here, remember, therefore, he says, nevertheless, I have this thing against you. You have left your first love. Remember, therefore, when, once you are fallen, repent and return and do the first works. Remember, repent, return. They were on autopilot. You know, they were like on cruise control, religiously speaking. They're doing this right, they're doing that right, but they forgot about the Lord. See, sometimes we can get so caught up in the work of the Lord, we forget the Lord of the work. You know? I mean, this is true. You know, it just, you know, is God speaking to us? That, you know, we, we lose that sensitivity to the Holy Spirit and Him working in our lives. Any thoughts on any of this? Any? But I mean, do you see how how this connects uh, from the time of Isaiah. Okay, let's go back to Isaiah. And so here he says, uh, uh, they brought in this, the land is full of silver and gold, verse 7. All this stuff is going on. Then it says they worship the works of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. And now man, you see pride. Pride is the really big issue. That is the capital sin here, that man has lifted himself up and he's actually worshiping those things he made. You know, and I think in a high-tech culture and society in the post, you know, we've gone from an industrial age to an informational age, we, we're, we're amazed by the inventions today. Am I right? We're going into a whole new realm of, of communication in uh, artificial intelligence and biomed. And, you know, we just think, wow, well, those are good if they're, you know, <laughs> if they're used well to the glory of God. If they're not... Uh, you know, the same knife that a surgeon can use to heal a patient could be used by a murderer to kill a victim. You know, how do we use these things? How have we used television when it came in in the 1950s? How is the internet being used today? How is, you know, all these other things? Uh, these are the works of man's hands that can glorify God, you know, or not. Okay, he says here, um, nine, people bow down and each man humbles himself. Therefore, do not forgive them. Then it says this, enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. Um, what's he saying here now in verse, th this is a very important phraseology that's used uh, to warn people. What's coming? Judgment is coming and he's going to warn the people and the people do what? When, they, when they, they know the Lord's coming or the appearance of the Lord what's called the day of the Lord or the terrible day of the Lord. What do the people do, sinners do? They use this, uh, it's not just poetic, but I mean, they may actually do this. What do they do here? It says what? They want to go into caves. They want to go into the, the, the brightness of God's coming, uh, being so bright. It says in Revelation chapter 6, verse 15, very similar thing. When judgment is falling, uh, it will say... Uh, and the kings of the earth and the great men, the rich men, the commanders of the mighty men, every slave, every free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains. You see, the glory of the Lord is coming and man can't stand. Remember when Adam and Eve, when God came walking in the cool of the day, what did they do? Hid. And what did God say? Adam, where are you? Okay. Whenever God asks a question, he's not looking for new information. Okay. He wanted Adam to know where Adam was. That's conviction. But God is searching. You know, God is an inviting God, but he's also a searching God. But if man rebels against God, this phrase where they, they go into the rocks, they go into caves, they were highly exalted here, and then they are brought low. You can't get no lower than to go into the caves and the rocks. Do you understand this kind of, he brings this kind of high and lifted up thing, and then this reverse here in judgment. Any, any kind of response? Somebody had their hand up? You've got to raise your hand periodically so I can get a drink of coffee. Anyhow, um, so he says, verse 11 of Isaiah, The lofty looks of man shall be humbled, the haughtiness of men shall be uh, bowed down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. The, the critical issue here is man's pride. You know, man's pride. And it's the same thing when man today thinks, I don't need God. Did you ever hear that? Well, I don't need God. My life is going along pretty good. Why? 
why would I ever have to, to, to bow down or admit I'm a sinner? That, that's an obstacle uh, for people, is it not? That, that the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I, I know people that have told me they never sinned. They don't sin like a what? You know, you walk through the Ten Commandments and, they, you know, have you, ever, have you ever stolen something? Yeah, well, that, what does that make you? It makes me a thief. Have you ever lied? What does that make you? Yeah, you're lying. You know, so you walk them through. The other thing about the Christian faith that the Greeks found a hard time with and the intellectuals of that day was the cross. They liked philosophy. They would have loved self-help books and, you know, this whole this stuff at the bookstore. But this whole thing of the cross, uh, the shedding of blood, that wasn't appealing. You know, they, they wanted wisdom. They wanted insight. They wanted knowledge. But what's the thing with the cross? See, and that's Isaiah. And that, there's nothing more humbling than to come to the foot of the cross and admit you're a sinner. You know, admit. But, but you know, the, the cross shows the depths of man's sin but the heights of God's love. There's no other icon, you know, uh, someday we'll do this, but if you look at all major corporations today, they use a logo. You think of the apple with the bite out of it. You think of McDonald's with the W, you know, the arches, or Nike with the check. Well, logo tells you something of the branding and the culture of that organization. Same thing with religion. The crescent moon and the star with Islam, the uh, Tao, the Tao Te Ching, you know, the balancing the white and the black, you know, the circle, on and on. But, but we Christians, our, our, our logo, so to speak, is a cross. Think about it. It's a cross. And, but that tells you something about our brand or our culture, kingdom culture, because it's all about death. It's all about that, that, that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins, you see? And that, that's a powerful thing. Uh, when we get into this whole thing for uh, Paul. That's why Paul says, I preach the cross and what? Jesus crucified. That's it. That, that's end of story. We lose that, we lost it. We're a club. A nice club, but a club. I mean, you lose, a, you lose that out of Christianity, you lost it. Really, seriously. Okay, back to Isaiah. He says, um, verse 12, For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty. See this idea of loftiness? And then what he does here is he talks about things lifted up, which, which is kind of a metaphor for pride. Uh, everything, and it shall be brought low upon the cedars of Lebanon, these tall trees uh, that are high and lifted up, upon the oaks of Bashan, upon the high mountains, upon the hills. All this is lofty stuff. The hills aren't bad, or the cedars, but they're lofty. And he's using this in a poetic sense, man's heart being lifted. And he says... Um, Upon the ships of Tarshish, upon the beautiful slopes, the ships, when you look on the horizon, see these ships sailing by. The loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. You see, the idea being, it says in James, God resists the proud, but what? But gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up okay he will but the idea is it's a hard thing for man i mean when we get to isaiah 14 and you see the fall of lucifer it's all about pride it's all about pride isaiah 14 ezekiel 28 we'll study that when we get there but here uh, this idea that lofty things that exalt themselves against god now just keep your place here and turn for a moment to second corinthians chapter 10 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And again, um, you know, the, there's nothing really um, new uh, under the sin, but it's this idea of, of loftiness or high uh, exaltation against God. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 says this For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty to the pulling down of strongholds, remember, strongholds, casting down argument and every high thing. Remember what we're studying in Isaiah 2? High things. Things that exalt themselves against God. Things that, you know, come, come they're, they're lofty. You know, we don't need God. We have these lofty ideas and concepts. Uh, cast down uh, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all this. But you, you guys, the idea being here that we can pull down strongholds. You know, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Really, 
if you even study world history, uh, wars in that, before there's a war, before people, leaders, martial armies, there's a thought, there's an idea, there's a philosophy, am I right? You think of fascism, Nazi. Well, Hitler had this thought, this Aryan superior brotherhood, and that, those thoughts led to his imagination, and then he, he, this is true all through human history. Before it becomes evil or that, it's a thought, okay? Thoughts live to make, out of the heart come thoughts. Jesus says it's not what goes into a man's mouth that defiles it. What comes out of the heart? Evil, carnality, all these things, uh, vengeance, revenge. And that affects belief. Belief determines behavior. You see, belief determines behavior. And so uh, I remember I had an opportunity to go to Cambodia to help on a documentary of landmine victims. This was back in the 80s, and it's still a big problem there. But when you see what Pol Pot did there to the people, uh, percentage-wise, he killed more people than Adolf Hitler because Cambodia wasn't that big of a country, you see? And you could see the killing fields, and, and you think, how could man do this to man? But it all starts in here with imaginations, with evil thoughts. And don't get me wrong, there's demonic influences. But that's, he's saying here, well, we, what kind of philosophies do we have that uh, assaults itself against God or the knowledge of God that have to be pulled down or have to be... I mean, think about our young people raised in church go off to college, 18, 19 years old. You think they're exposed to anything that's lofty and high that exalts itself against the knowledge of God? Huh? That's why they're strengthened here as they're little 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, 16 says, Timothy, from a little toddler, thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that now you might be a man of God, thoroughly equipped to all good works. That's where we want to see our children, the next generation, raised up. Why? You, <laughs> because this culture, am I right, is coming at them, coming at all of us, but particularly young people, is it not in our day and age? We have to raise our children. I'm not being dramatic. We have to raise our children to be Daniels in Babylon. Or Danielettes. Or Danielettes. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I'm just being facetious. But do you understand the principle? So that not only these things that are anti-God philosophies and everything else that can influence and affect it, but they will actually be agents of change. Like Daniel. Like Joseph in Egypt. Like, you see the thing? And that's a, powerful, that's a powerful thing to do. And that's really, it says in Micah, why does God want us to have children? Why does he want the righteous to have children? That he might rise up, raise up a godly seed. You know, that lights that go out into a darkened world. Any comment on in this? Yes, please. Yeah, yeah, you're right, Joyce. It starts out small. Most defeated Christians' lives are not a blowout. They're a slow leak. Am I right? That's true with cavities. Or true with most everything. It doesn't start like, oh, and there it is. It's, it's getting away from the Word of God, getting away from church, getting away from fellowship, not being sensitive to the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. Drift, 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 drift. You know? And then before you know it, the, you know, there's a way that seemeth right unto man, but the, way, the end thereof is what? Yeah. Destruction. Yeah. Yes, please. Two girls come to me 
people about our faith because we haven't been given the tools. But they've been raised in the church. Right? So I think even well-intentioned people who are Christians are, are think we're doing our children a disservice because we haven't given them the tools of the scripture. And, and it's all about all the other things. And, and I, I really worry and I'm burdened about that. Yeah, I think you bring up a very good point. I mean, that, that's a good point to open for discussion. But if they're not equipped, you know, it says in Ephesians 6, it, it even talks about the equipping as being armor. You know, I mean, shield and a sword. But if we're not equipping the next generation, our children, the children's children, they're going out into a world that, that is, is coming at them, you know, like nine ways to Sunday to disrupt, uh, uh, dismiss, uh, mock, uh, those truths that they grew up with. Yes? You know, that, that, that's, that's, that's just... Now, the plus side of that is that if they are equipped, uh, that's a powerful thing. And I'm not going to bore you with the testimony I had when I was in the military during the Vietnam War. One guy in my unit was a believer. I do, looking back, no, it wasn't me, I'll tell you that. But, uh, but I think there may have been others that put their light under a bushel. But he was, and he lived a straight-up life before... We were in a medical unit. It was like 40 guys that were in this double barracks. But his life influenced one guy. You get one person that's really solid, like 2 Timothy chapter 3.15, uh, that he's thoroughly furnished and he's a man of God and he goes out into the world. That's powerful. I mean, some of the testimonies coming out this week of some of these guys playing the Super Bowl, that's powerful. It really is on a national platform that they don't back away and minimize their faith. Quarterback. <coughs> yeah. You see? It's just what it is. It's just powerful when somebody is a stand-up person. Yes? I also think that not only might our kids not know the Bible the way as much as they want them, but I bet in this room it would be, a lot of us would be hard-pressed to explain to you why we, why we don't dismiss the Bible, that understanding the veracity of the Bible, where it came from, that's, the, that's step one, and, and my kids have gone into that in college all the time, is it's, it's been dismissed as a, as a wonderful, nice, book with lots of good parts but you know there's lots of messed up parts and, uh -huh. and they're quick they can't tell you where and all that but they but i don't know that our kids are always as uh, equipped to understand why we have this book why we why would you build your life on a book mm -hmm. and it that's a, that's another question they can't answer sometimes yeah it's a good book the other thing about not being rooted in the word and just being into the experiential part of it so if you're not rooted in the words, the experience you might have could be counterfeit. You don't always get the real thing when you're only looking for experience. But being rooted in the word, uh, the more rooted you are, the more God's experience will, will happen upon you in your life. Yeah, feelings make great servants, but terrible leaders. Feelings follow. But I, I'll give you an example, a practical example. I had uh, come to my house one day, two Mormons. One was like an elder and the other was like an apprentice. Long story short, anyhow, anyhow, um, they came, they knocked on the door, they came in. And uh, so they said to me, you know, um, did, you, did you ever think about creation and God made everything? And I said, yeah. And he goes, uh, and God revealed himself to us through the prophets. I go, oh, okay. And he said to me, um, and the last of that prophet was Joseph Smith. I go, really? He says, yeah. And I says, why do you think he's a prophet? He goes, what do you mean? I says, well, didn't Jesus say after he left, many false prophets would come on the scene? He goes, oh, that's a good question. And he said, um, what you do is when you, when you study the Book of Mormon, before you study it, you pray. And according to James 1, if you pray, God will give the witness in your heart, what they call the burning in the bosom, and that will prove it's true. I said, let me ask you a question. I think it's in, I think it's in uh, Acts chapter 17 when the Bereans heard the great apostle Paul preach did they pray to see if that was true or not? They go, what are you saying, John? I says, well, they, they, they check the scriptures daily to see what the great apostle Paul preached was true. I think I should do the same with Joseph Smith, don't you? He says, well, he, I says, let me give you an... Oh, anyhow, I don't want to go in there. But, <laughs> but long story short, they got upset, and I didn't want them to get upset. I didn't, and, he, and, he, and he ended up by saying... Uh, I don't feel the Holy Spirit here anymore. I says, well, the Bible tells me he'll never leave me nor forsake me. And by that time, he's got his book together. <laughs> but, but what I'm saying is, we have to be able to engage culture, and culture is ideas. Beyond 
the TV program, beyond the movies, beyond the books, the professors, is ideas. We don't wrestle against these gods. It's what's that idea? Where's that philosophy coming from? We've got it. We have to know what we have. That, that, in my travels in ministry, this is, we don't know what we have. I'm serious, in terms of resource. Nobody can beat us. No, we'll get into, when we do worldview, we'll look at this. No other religion or philosophy has a dual system. They have a singular book, the Book of Mormon, the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, Diametics of Scientology. We've got two, Old Testament, New Testament, separated by 400 years. To write this, that these go tongue and groove, you have to be out of space and time. You have to be, because you're telling 500 years before the event when Messiah comes, he's born in Bethlehem. Christians didn't write that. That's a finished book 400 years before that. You see what I'm saying? But we don't often understand what power we have, and we're, we, get, we get hit, and we don't know how to answer. Hopefully, at the end of this class, we will. Yes, Ed? <laughs> okay, go <laughs> Somebody else had their hand up. Okay. But I think that that's that's what's going on. That's what was going on here twenty seven hundred years ago. These ideas were coming in, they were influencing God's people, and they were drifting this way and they're drifting that way. And God in his mercy is calling them back to himself. Think God, I believe God is always. Yes, yes. A little bit louder. We're not so different than some of the ancient cultures. We've allowed paganism over the years. So you look at like Easter, you see the Easter chicks and the rabbits and all that. That all has to do with uh, fertilization, not resurrection. And, and so those items are there in our foundation too. But really, if you look at it, if you plot it on the Holy Week, it falls on the feast day of first fruits mm -hmm. when Christ arose. Right. So we're looking at this, this pagan holiday. I mean, we don't really accept it mm -hmm. that way, but, but we've allowed that into our own, our own atmosphere. Yeah, I mean, again, I think the tendency is to drift. We don't, the tendency is not to get more spiritual unless we become disciples, unless we make that effort. Because the world is in a fallen condition that, that left on our own, we, we, would, we go down. There's a spiritual moral gravity that pulls us down. But what Jesus has given us through his death, burial, and resurrection is the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the guidebook of the Word of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are resourced to live that victorious life. Do you understand? To, to, to live that. But left on our own, you know, we... If we don't do those things and pray and fellowship and be part of a church and all these things that we're called upon to live a disciple life, put off the old man, put on the new man, we will drift. We will drift. It's the normal state of things. You know, somebody said the Christian life is a little bit like riding a bicycle uphill. You stop, you go, you know, you drift back, or we call it backsliding. Yes, uh, over here, please. Talk about Christ, either the foundation, because without our foundation, you're going to fall apart. And without that, that anchor, you are going to drift. It's man's nature. So you got to find what your anchor is in. Yeah, you got to get that anchor. That is. Um, I was just thinking about the, you know, the topic we were talking about and influences. Just a little bit about. Uh, I'm thinking about influences from, you know, other religions, etc. We can we can think about it in terms of the outward observance, which is you know, important, that's part of the package, but also in Isaiah, I think he's getting at um, idols of the heart, and like, if you take the first commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as, your help, as yourself, well, that's, that's a, you know, that's a command that gets right down to the root of the heart, and the point I wanted to make was that sometimes, even in our evangelical Christian culture, we can be blind to these big things like the power of money, for example, or the power of sex or the power of power, you know, money, sex, these big issues like what Chris was preaching about today. And those things can capture our hearts in ways that 
are, are really syncretistic, but they're getting down to the root level of things. And so <laughs> I think we all need to be watchful of that as we you know, try to live as a, a community um, that worships Christ, you know, with, with our all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, that we that we be on guard for those, those things as well. Because if you think about these two questions, what what do I depend on or who do I depend on in all these different areas of life? And secondly, where is the where is the satisfaction of my heart derived from primarily? And and those those kind of get down to the it's the underbelly of syncretism, I guess, is mm. where, where our heart's affection is is focused. I guess along the lines of what you know John Piper talks about. And so I just wanted to bring that point under the table too. Yeah, I think it's a good point. Because yeah, again, belief determines behavior. So before we see the idolatry, these false there's something in the heart where they're drifting away from the living God. And the psalmist will, will pray, search my heart, O Lord, to, to see if there be any unclean thing in me. I mean, I think that's well taken. I think. Um, and again, this all started in the heart. You know, well, Jesus himself will say that. It's not what goes into a man's mouth that defiles, but what comes out of the heart. Are we guarding our heart? You know. Okay, back to Isaiah, and I'll start wrapping it up here. But um, then he says in verse 18, But the idols he shall utterly abolish. They shall go into the holes and the rocks and the caves and the earth. The glory of the Lord is coming. You know, even holy men of God, uh, when they're in the presence of God, we'll see this in Isaiah chapter 6, they're like undone. You know, you see this with Ezekiel, you see this with Daniel, you see this with uh, John in the first chapter of Revelation. It's so, his glory, you know, the, the, the brightness and the power but let alone sinful man here. And he says, in that day, verse 20, uh, a man shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which he made each for himself to worship, to the moles and to the bats. These are things from caverns. And, you know, that's, think of the Titanic going down and all those wealthy people in that. But I mean, what were they looking to save at, at the very end? Just themselves. You know, they didn't want to, you know, there's treasures and they got all this stuff, you know, and they want to save themselves. So he said, all this gold and silver doesn't mean that much anymore. He says, uh, to go, verse 21, to go into the clefts in the rocks and into the crags of the rugged rocks and from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty, when he arises to shake the earth mightily. Uh, sever yourselves from such a man whose breath is in his nostrils. So he's saying here, it, this is coming. You know, this is coming. Now it's going to come in different stages. You know, you got the first one is going to happen to Judah, you know, in uh, the year uh, 586. And then, of course, you got the end of the age, you know, this, this, this great and terrible day of the Lord that's coming. So, but the key is, we're going to pick it up next week, is this idea that God is warning and, and putting in these things of return to me, repent, get rid of these things, get things right with God. And, and so he can restore. Now we know they won't do it in this historical context. And what's interesting here is that when you go down to chapter 3, where it says, Behold, the Lord of hosts uh, takes away from Jerusalem and from Judea the stock and the store, the whole supply of bread, the whole supply of water. Everything is being taken away that they once depended on. The mighty man and the man of war, the judge, the prophet, the diviner, the elder, the captain, all the way down. And what does he say in verse 4? I will give children to be your princes, and babies shall roll over. You know, even, you know, this speaks of social order is just coming unglued here. And it says, uh, the people will be oppressed, everyone by his, uh, another one by his neighbor. The child will be insolent toward the elder. Interesting. And the base toward the honorable. Even people aren't respected anymore. Honorable people aren't respected. When a man takes hold of his brother in the house of the father, say, you have clothing, you be our ruler, and let these ruins uh, be under your power. Uh, in that day, you, uh, he will protest, saying, I cannot cure your ills, for in my house is neither food nor clothing. Do not make me a ruler of the people. And it says, why? Verse 8, for Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah is fallen. Why? Because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord. Verse 8, their words and their actions are against the Lord. Doesn't matter if they were, chapter 1, are doing the religious ritual of their days. Their tongue, because again, God is bringing a case against Judah and Jerusalem. That's why he says in verse 1, uh, verse 2 of chapter 1, I want heaven and earth to witness this. You know, like, it's a jury. It's like, here's the case against you guys. And he says, um, 9, uh, 
the look of their countenance witnesses against them, and they declare their sin as Sodom, they do not hide it. What's he saying in verse 9? And they declare their sin as Sodom, they do not hide it. It means their sinfulness, they celebrate it. You understand? There's, later on, it, it'll say that the people don't, they don't have any shame anymore. They just celebrate whatever. You know, whatever sin is just lifted up, so to speak. And then it says, um, and they woe to their soul, for they have brought evil upon themselves. Say to the righteous that it shall be well with you, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Here's this insert again about the righteousness. Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with him. There's the deal. Live righteously. You live in that in that place where God wants you to live, in the blessing. Woe, here comes these woes, it shall be with him. For the reward of his hands shall be given him. As for my people, children are their oppressors. Now, he says, and the women shall rule over them. Oh, my people, those who lead you cause you to err and destroy the way of your paths. See, the leadership is, is leading the people astray here. Uh, the Lord stands up to plead and stands to judge the people. The Lord will enter judgment. This idea of a court case. The elders of his people, the princes, you have eaten up the vineyard, the plunder the poor. So socially, they're not taking care of those that are hurting, marginalized. You do, uh, you, you crush my people, you grind them. And then he goes to the, the whole thing with women. He says in verse 16, moreover, the Lord says, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, they walk with outstretched necks, wanton eyes, or seducing eyes, walking and mincing as they go, making and jingling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab. So if you have this on a whiteboard, everything that they do in terms of ornaments and pride, it's contrasted by what's going to happen when the judgment comes. The headdresses, the leg ornaments, the headbands, the perfume boxes, the mirrors, turbans. Instead, verse 24 says, of sweet smell, there will be stench. Instead of sash, there'll be a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of rich robe, girding of the sackcloth. So he's speaking all this stuff in high... Uh, illustration. You know, Isaiah is like, they call him the Shakespeare of the Old Testament. He's very poetic, and we'll get later on to see even how he structures things. It's very interesting. But here he's working with contrast. You have the plating of hair, now because judgment evolves. You have this, now this, now this. And then he says, her gates shall lament and mourn, and she shall be desolate and sit on the ground. And there's you have that desolation is coming. And before it comes to them, it's coming up north uh, to the, uh, the northern kingdoms. They're going to see it, you know. In, 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 in. Any closing thoughts? Yes, sir. That's the fastest we have ever covered a chapter. Ah. <laughs> okay, we're doing better. Okay. Well, we only have 64 more to go. Um, but really, uh, the intent of this class, first and foremost, is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, that all of us may grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's, it, it is good to know the book of Isaiah better and how it relates, and this is really good. But if it doesn't change us, if it's not transformational, it's just informational. You know? I always say, if it's at that level, it's a book club. It's a really good book, but if it's not transforming you and me, that we're different when we leave here, you know, what have we done with our time? You know, hour here that we spend on every Sunday morning. But the key is, if we get through with 10 chapters, we, we plan to end at end of May, because I travel abroad in, in uh, the summer, my wife and I, to Thailand, uh, and then pick it up in September. We'll finish it in the fall, you see? But I'm not in a hurry. But what I really want to get is discussion and conversation that this big group becomes a small group in the sense of uh, we deal with scriptures and life and what's going on in our world. Any thoughts on that? That's, that's you know, as Pastor Chris and the pastors are saying, they really want to formulate, incubate, as it were, small groups, because I think this is where we really grow. You know, we have questions that we can discuss and dialogue. Any thoughts about any of this before? Yes, Fred. John, wouldn't it be uh, ludicrous for us to think that syncretism hasn't entered our own church and it may have entered for me? Well, we're going to look at this. I mean, as we go into it, and of course, the scriptures admonish. If you look at almost every epistle Paul wrote, Galatia, Corinth, Corinthians, they were written to correct some error that was creeping in to that first century church, to the churches, to the point that in Second Corinthians chapter thirteen, he says, "Examine yourself." He's writing to a church. That if, are you even in the faith? He says, is Christ in you or not? You know, so you're, to your point, Fred, I think every 
generation, every church has to, you know, somebody's well said, when you read the Bible, the Bible's reading you. It's x-ray, it's pointing out. Test all things, hold fast to that which is good. I think every, every church, every denomination has to do this. Look in our day and age, what great denominations are now shipwrecked. I'm serious. These were vibrant, uh, powerful uh, churches, denominations that have drifted away from this, got into man's wisdom, doing this, doing that. It might be contrary to the Bible, but it's acceptable. And all of a sudden, it's drifted. It's shipwrecked. They've lost their light. They lost their, as it says in Revelation, he'll take the candlestick away. It's a good point. How we're doing what? Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I, it's a good point because it says in Second Peter, look, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give an answer to everyone that asks the reason for the hope that lies within you. But do it how? Yeah, with respect and, and, and love. Even with, when the Mormons came out, it was like I was just bantering, just having fun. I wasn't antagonistic, uh, you know. You know, I, I try to generate more light than heat, if possible. Yeah. But when I hear you talking about that, you were just supporting it with scripture. You were just giving that truth. Because Jesus said, you know, I'm, I'm, I came, he's with the sword of truth. You're going to make people mad by just yeah. I, truth to them. So to me, they're, they're going to get mad because you are undoing their untruth. Yeah, I mean, if, if you go to a doctor and he does all the x-rays and the whole lab workup, and he comes to tell you, well, this is a really serious cancer thing you have, but if we do this, this, and that, he's not, you're not mad at him because he told you the truth. You know, he, he does it in a nice way. He's just telling you this is the fact, but here's the remedy, or here's the cure. But you have to speak the truth in love. That's where we get in trouble. If we just speak just the truth, it can be very harsh. If we just speak love and no truth, it's what I call homework theology. It's too sweet, you know. Jesus called it to be salt of the earth, not sugar. And we can minimize holiness, the scripture, and everything else to be more appealing to modern man. That's problematic. So there's such a chasm in our culture, though, because now, you know, with the truth we stand on in the Bible, and our culture is saying we're haters because we have, you know, yeah. the truth of the Bible, they're, they're calling us haters. So how, how, do you, how do you come in between? How do you speak the truth and love to that? What did Jesus say? In this world you will have... Tribulation, but be of good. That's one of those promises we don't have in those little promise boxes we keep by the car. Hey, you know, but what? I, <laughs> look, they call. They said that Jesus, that he has a demon. They said that to Jesus. Why should we be any less? You know, if you hold the truth and represent the truth, it's how many saw Fiddler on the Roof? Great, one of the greatest movies. He said, I can move that way. Remember this daughter? He says, I can't move no farther. We can move a lot of ways, but we, there's certain places we can't back up. You understand, scripturally speaking. There's a lot of give in, the, in, the, in the, uh, Christendom, in Christianity. That's why it goes into all cultures, Chinese, South America. There's a lot of give, but there's certain things you can't give up. You can change the wineskins, you can't change that wine. And when they come against the deity of Christ, the Trinity, blood atonement, inerrancy of scripture, uh, coming hell, judgment, heaven, you can't back up, you know. But style of music, worship, one pastor, two pastors, men there, sit here, women there, take off your shoes, whatever. That's negotiable. But man, you can't. And that's where we're at today. And that's why we need a foundation. And that's yeah. why our kids need to have the foundation of the Bible because you will be moved. I agree. Yeah. And people will be mad. Yeah. Anyone else before we close? We'll pick up on some of these topics. Really, chapter one and two are foundational stuff. Yes, Marie, announcement?
Okay, thank you. And again, that goes to the fellowship side of things, which I think is so oh, important. And, and if you guys could like have it set up kind of soon after service, uh, and um, yeah, we'll That's it. So let's close in prayer. Um, but I, I have two prayer requests. One is Richard Ellis. You know Richard and Linda Ellis. He had, a, was it a stroke this morning? Stroke. stroke. He's at Fairview. But he's, I think he's coming home tomorrow. And my brother Joe, who usually sits here, uh, he fell and broke both his arms. So, that, so whoever would like to close in prayer and pray for Richard and for Joe. Right there.